Our text this morning is Luke chapter 22, verses 63, down through the end of the chapter, to verse 25 of chapter 23. Our Lord Jesus Christ continues to move toward His death on the cross and His resurrection. And this morning we look at the trials that surround this final few days. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Luke chapter 22 beginning at verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, And mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, 
I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, our God, Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word, that you would teach us the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would teach us the depth of our sin and our need, and the greatness of the redemption that you have provided by your mercy and grace. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Have you ever wondered about the true nature of the world? It seems that as we watch films and read novels and and listen to various academics, there seems to be a thread that runs throughout many people's lives. And that is they view the world as being basically good. And people as being basically good. The shock is not that so many people believe that. The shock is that they believe it in spite of all of the evidence that we see on the news and in our neighborhoods and in our societies each and every day. And perhaps even a greater shock is that it is directly contrary to what we know to be true from the Scriptures. The Scriptures describe to us how man is fallen, how our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed the Lord, And in that disobedience, allowed sin to enter into the world. And that sin takes a grip on the lives of each and every person, man, woman, and child alike. We see it in the selfishness of our lives. We see it in our demanding attitudes. We see it in the way that others treat us and we treat others. And here this morning, as we look as Jesus approaches the cross, we see it very clearly in the trial of Jesus. Actually, we might call the title of the sermon The Trials of Jesus because there are no less than three jurisdictions that try Jesus. No less than three jurisdictions that cannot find guilt in Him. And yet, our Lord Jesus Christ is abused, convicted, and punished as an innocent one. This morning, I'd like us to see these Three trials, as it were. First, we see Jesus before the council. Second, we see Jesus before Herod. And then third, 
we see Jesus back before Pilate. Three very differing jurisdictions, all of which speak to the innocence and the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin then by looking at Jesus before the council. You'll recall that last week we saw that Jesus was betrayed. He was betrayed by Judas and he was carried off by the temple guard. Peter had followed him at some distance and had denied him. And now Jesus is on trial literally for his life before the council. This is Jesus' Jewish trial, his religious trial. And even in this trial there are many different aspects to it. First, Jesus was taken to Annas, the man who was the previous high priest. John, in his gospel, (coughs) chapter 18, describes this. It's sort of a pre-trial, pre-trial hearing. They take him off, and the whole idea here is to get Jesus in front of as many authorities as they can to stir up as much guilt as they possibly can. So they take him to Annas, who has no official position, He is just simply the former high priest. And they take him so that Annas can try and find guilt in him. Now, even this is a ridiculous way to conduct a judicial proceeding. It would be as if you were caught speeding on the highway and they took you to the home office of the former mayor of Katy to let him weigh in on whether or not you should be convicted of that crime. Annas takes Jesus, and then hands him over to the current high priest, Caiaphas, who is also a great piece of work. Caiaphas is the high priest only because he has been appointed so by Pilate, the Roman governor. Now stop and let that sink in for a minute. The current high priest who is in charge of this religious trial, who is in charge of the temple and all of the Jewish religion, has been appointed by a pagan bureaucrat. So Caiaphas is far more known for his politicking than he is for his theology. And so they take Jesus to Caiaphas, and that is what we see previously, last week, happening at night. There is an interrogation. It's a pre-trial proceeding. It's the prosecutor with no defense attorney trying to stir up as much evidence as is possible. Jesus gets no Miranda warnings, and you can be sure that anything that he says, they will attempt to twist and use against him. But there is an interesting sideline to Jewish legal thought. They could bring Jesus before the high priest and have sort of a trial, but they couldn't have an actual, real, binding trial at night. It was a part of Jewish law that trials had to be held in the daytime. Because at night it would be easy to sweep someone in under cover of darkness, and to find them guilty, and to do it secretly. And so Jewish law had always held that there had to be a daytime trial. And so we see here now the Jews taking Jesus first to Annas, then to Caiaphas. And now we see in verse 66, as soon as it became daylight, they waste no time at all, but they begin to have the official trial. It is a trial of the council. The council of the Sanhedrin, made up of the Jewish elders, 
the priests, and the leaders of the people. But make no mistake about it, this is not an impartial trial. The hard work has already been done at night by Caiaphas and his minions. This is simply putting the rubber stamp on the guilty verdict. And even in the midst of this, they cannot stop from abusing and attacking our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Now this should conjure up for us at least some memories of YouTube videos and various police scandals and other types of incidents that we see of people attacking one another and it being caught on a cell phone camera. But now imagine this here. In those instances, we don't know everything that's going on. We don't know the background. We don't know what everyone has said. We don't know what they have done. We don't know who is guilty or how much. In this instance, Luke has laid out for us the entirety of Jesus' life. How he has never harmed anyone. How he has never sinned or done anything wrong. How even when he was attacked and set upon by the temple guards, he did not resist arrest, even though he was guilty of nothing. And yet here the authorities seek to abuse him and to beat him. Jesus had done nothing wrong. They only did this for their own pleasure, we see in verse 64. They decide to come up with a game, as it were, of beat the prisoner. Hit him, and then ask him, do you know who hit you? It's the cruelest sort of thing that we can imagine. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ suffered this. Each and every blow. Not because he was deserving, but for sinners. Sinners like you and me. Each time a hand was laid upon him, it was something that we deserved. He was completely innocent of all of these charges. He should have been back at his home, sleeping, relaxing. And yet here now he has been dragged into a maelstrom of injustice. And it's worse than that. It's not just that they physically beat him. Luke tells us that they blaspheme him. Because he is, after all, God himself. And they're mocking him and mocking who he is. They're mocking him as a prophet. He has gone throughout the entirety of this gospel bringing God's word to God's people, declaring to them truth, the truth that they need to be right with God. He has declared things that were to come and to be. And now here they are trying to denigrate the word of Jesus. They want to push him aside. And so what they want to do is to show that he doesn't really have God's word in him. That he can't even predict who's hitting him. You see, this is how people act far too often. They take comfort in abusing God. People think that they are somehow made happier or more whole or have more purpose if they can abuse God, lay all sorts of charges to God's seat. That's what they're trying to do here. They're trying to avoid their own guilt and their own shame by abusing Jesus. It tells us something about people. It tells us something about sin. I think it even tells us something about ourselves. But you see, Jesus suffers under this. So Jesus 
knows mistreatment. Have you ever had something happen to you and you just sort of looked up in despair and said, Why me? Why is this happening to me? Of all the people and all the times, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me, God? I'm sure you have. I do that when I get caught in traffic. We think everything should go right for us. And we wonder why we're being mistreated. And we want justice. And we want, don't we, to strike back. We want to find someone that we can get back at. That we can make things right. Or we can at least make ourselves feel better by making them a bit miserable. Isn't that true? But you see, Jesus suffered this mistreatment. And he didn't strike back. And he didn't say, why me? He was never at any point despairing. He was never at any point angry. You see, Jesus, when he speaks to us about patient endurance, doesn't just give us words. Jesus shows us what patient endurance is. If we are mistreated, all we need to do is think about our Lord Jesus and what he has undergone for your sake and for mine. Jesus is also misunderstood because you see in the middle of this trial, three titles of our Lord Jesus are talked about. First, the Jews ask him if he is the Christ. In verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. And when we say that Jesus is the Christ, this is not Jesus' last name. This is a title that means the anointed one. It means one whom God has anointed to redeem his people, to rule over the people of God forever. And you see, there are kingly overtones to the title of Christ, because it was to be David's son who would be the Christ. But the problem is, is that the Jewish leaders here want Jesus to admit to being a kind of a king. So that they can take that, record it, and run to Pilate and say, See, he thinks he's a king. He thinks he's better than you. And so Jesus answers in kind of an obscure way. He says, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. You see, the thing here is, Jesus is not trying to avoid a conviction. He's not trying to find a loophole. He's innocent. But what he is reminding them is, is that their definition of Christ is not his. If he were to tell them that he was the Christ and what it meant to be the Christ, they wouldn't believe him. Because they don't believe they have sin. They don't believe they need a redeemer. They don't believe that God is at work, the work of salvation. And if he were to ask them, they wouldn't answer. The whole Gospel of Luke is full of this, of Jesus asking the Pharisees and the Sadducees and them refusing to answer these questions. And after all, we don't really need an answer to this either here, do we? Because Luke has spent the entirety of his Gospel telling us that Jesus is the Christ. It's what Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1. It's what the angels declared to the shepherds in Luke 2. It's what Simeon declared that his greatness was to see the Lord's Christ. It's what Peter confessed in Luke 9, that Jesus is the Christ. You see, this is not a sincere question from the Jewish leaders. 
They don't want that kind of Christ. Jesus continues to answer and he says, But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So Jesus then begins to use what is his most used title for himself, the Son of Man. And it fits him perfectly because it describes one who is man, but one who has divine authority, who is like God. That's the picture we see from the book of Daniel. It is the God-man. It describes Jesus perfectly. I think that's why he uses it so often of himself. And it's interesting, especially here, because when Jesus is using this title, he is referring to his own authority, something that the Jewish council will not acknowledge. Jesus is speaking about his authority, and his authority specifically as the one who is in authority over judgment. And the Jewish leaders don't like that. They want Jesus to meet their standards. They're not willing to meet his. And so what they do then is they see what Jesus is declaring. And they look at him and they say in verse 70, Are you the Son of God then? Now, In our modern day, universities all over this land are filled with people who will tell you until they are out of breath that Jesus never claimed that he was God. That that's just something that we who say we believe the Bible have mistaken. And if we would understand the real Jesus, the true historical Jesus, we'd find he's a nice, kind teacher who maybe lost his way. The interesting thing is, the people who are standing there talking to Jesus don't see that. They hear him declare and they say, are you saying that you're God? That you're the Son of God? They don't miss a beat. You see, the Jews obviously thought that Jesus declared himself to be God, but they wanted to make sure, they wanted chapter and verse, they wanted evidence to bring against him before Rome. Now again... We already know the answer to this question. Luke has been telling us this over and over again. In Luke 1, Jesus is called the Son of the Most High. At His baptism in Luke 3, we hear the Father say, You are my beloved Son. And on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9, the Father says, This is my Son. So we again already know the answer. But Jesus gives again a curious answer. He says, You have said so, or you say that I am. Now, when he says, you say that I am, he's expressing something that's not total agreement with them. But it's not that he's saying he's not God or he's holding back. One has put it this way. It's as if Jesus said, I wouldn't have put it that way, but since you've put it that way, I won't deny it. Because you see, who I am is far beyond what you think. I will not fit into your categories. You see, Jesus will only answer so far as is true. He is indeed the Son of God, but He is the one and only Son. He is not a Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the one given for the salvation of sinners. And those who are asking the question don't understand any of those categories. The third thing we see before the council is that Jesus is maligned. Because they think they have Jesus dead to rights here. And so what they begin to do is to rush and take him off now to Pilate and to make false charges against him. Now notice, it's almost 
a comical scene that not just some of the Jewish leaders, not just the police take him, but the whole council runs along because they're so angry and they so want to see Jesus condemned. And they come up to Pilate and they act as if they're doing Pilate a favor. Look at verse 2. We found this man, Pilate. We did your police's job for you. And we've got three charges to lay against him. Now, what are the three charges? First, they say he is misleading our nation, subverting the nation. Second, he tells us not to pay taxes. Third, he claims to be a king. Now, it's very interesting that these charges come up. First, misleading the nation. Now, what exactly does that mean? I might imagine that Pilate would look at them and say, excuse me, could you be a bit more vague? What does it mean to mislead the nation? Exactly what law has been broken here? What has he done wrong? And then the second charge that they bring to him is very specific, but guess what? It's also completely false. They say, Jesus told us not to pay taxes. Now, that's designed to get Pilate's ire up, because Pilate won't be able to make his budget unless he collects his taxes. And so they're implicitly threatening Pilate, saying, unless you take care of this, you might have a rebellion on your hands, and it'll go bad for you. There's only one problem with this. Jesus said the exact opposite. Do you remember Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's? This is a complete and utter lie. And I wonder if at this point... The Jewish council has it in their head that Jesus will not defend himself. Because if I were Jesus' defense attorney, I would stand up and I would say, Your Honor, that's completely false. Let's bring in a hundred witnesses that will testify that he said the exact opposite. The third charge that comes out is that he claims to be a king. Again, they're twisting this title of Christ. They're trying to make it seem... Like Jesus wants to start a rebellion and get rid of Pilate. And you'll notice that's the only charge that Pilate seizes upon. He wants to know if there's anything to it. So he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus then answers him, you have said so. Now again, Jesus here can only go so far with Pilate. He doesn't want to reign on Pilate's throne. Jesus is the king of the Jews because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Lord of all God's people. He is God's anointed. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is David's son. He's not a politician. He's not running for office. He doesn't need an army. Jesus will tell Pilate, as recorded by John, that his kingdom is not of this world. For if it were... Legions of angels would come down to defend him. Pilate wants to see what Jesus is like on his own level. He can't understand who Jesus is apart from his own politicking. And so Jesus admits the truth simply, but without the limitations that Pilate puts on it. And Pilate does something very interesting. He looks at everyone and he says, Well, he's not guilty. Pilate sees through all the accusations. If this were an episode of Law and Order, they would be rolling the credits. Not guilty. It's all done. But you see, it doesn't stop here. 
Because the Jews aren't about innocence or guilt of Jesus. They want Jesus out of the way and they begin to be frantic. Look at verse 5. But they were urgent. He stirs up all the people. Teaching through Judea, Galilee, all over the place. Come on, Pilate, do something. They're almost like a small child who hasn't gotten a nap and hasn't been fed. They're a bit cantankerous. They're a bit out of sorts. And you see, they come after Jesus. But Pilate, I think, really only hears one word. Galilee. Because you see, Pilate doesn't want to put up with this. He's not a Jewish priest. He doesn't see any problems here. He doesn't want any riots. He doesn't want any rebellions. What am I going to do with Jesus? And so Pilate does what so many of us do. He follows the good principle of pass the buck. You see, this is like when children come up to dad and ask if they can do something or go somewhere or have something. Dad's not sure how to answer because he's not sure if he should deny them, but he's not sure if he says yes, if he'll get in trouble with mom. And so dad does that thing that he always does. Go ask your mom. That's what Pilate does here. He hears that Jesus is from Galilee, and so under Roman law, you could be tried in one of two jurisdictions, either the place where the crime was committed or the place where you were from. And so Pilate thinks he is struck on genius. Pack Jesus up and send him off to to Herod. He can handle this. It might also help Herod to feel good about himself. You see, this is Herod the Tetrarch. This is not Herod who had killed all of the baby boys. This is the Herod who had beheaded John the Baptist. He was not the king, per se. He was a Tetrarch which is a good step down from being king. It meant he was below Pilate. He took orders from the Roman governor. And now here's a chance for Pilate to make Herod look big and to send a nice big case his way that he could decide. And this is why I think Luke tells us Herod is glad to see Jesus. I think one of the reasons he's glad is that he now, as a person of authority, he's someone that gets to make a decision. But I think there's something else here that Herod is glad about. It is odd. No one else wants to handle Jesus. But Herod does. It's not because Herod wants to hear Jesus' truth. It's not because Herod wants to do the right thing. Herod wants showtime. Herod wants Jesus to do some tricks. You can almost imagine the beginning of this inquisition. Okay, Jesus, can you, I hear you like turn stuff into wine. Can you do that? Come on. We want some good wine. All right, how about healing somebody of diseases? One of my soldiers is not well. No? Well, what about this? What about that? Come on, Jesus, throw me a bone here. Do something. You see, that's what Herod wants. Herod wants a show. Herod wants Jesus to serve him. That's far too often what people in the world want. They want Jesus to serve them. To do things for them. But Jesus is interestingly here. He is silent entirely before Herod. He suffers in silence. Why is this? 
I think first and foremost it's because Jesus trusts the Father. He doesn't need Herod to vindicate him. He knows that his Father will vindicate him through the resurrection. Jesus knows he does not have to defend himself. That question then comes to you. Do you know by God's word that you will be vindicated? Do you know that by faith in Christ that you are Christ and that you will rise from the dead even as Jesus has risen? Then if so, why are you always trying to vindicate yourself? Why do you want others to know you were right? Isn't it enough to trust your heavenly Father? Because that is where surety is found. That is where stability and strength is. But I think there's a second thing going on here that's a warning to us. I think Jesus is also silent before Herod as a warning about grace. Because you see, this is the Herod who took his brother's wife. This is the Herod who killed John the Baptist. This is the Herod who wants nothing of God. And so the time for the gospel and grace in Herod's life is over. His heart is too hard. This may sound frightening and very ungracious, but there is an end to God's grace. You cannot always presume tomorrow God will cut you a break. And you can do whatever you want to do today because there's always tomorrow. Herod faces silence here. Would that Herod had come to know the Lord before his heart was hardened. You see, that call comes to you even now. Do not put off Jesus. Do not put off the grace that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus suffers here in silence. But he also suffers as an innocent one. And he suffers innocently for us on our behalf. Because after all, Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures as we see in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I think in a very real sense we see here Jesus suffering silently so that he could speak at our trial. Jesus is suffering for us. He is unworthy of all of this Punishment, this abuse, this mocking. Again, as Herod now puts an old royal hand-me-down robe upon him. Can you imagine how horrible that must have been? The king of kings and lord of lords being mocked as a king by a usurping half-Jew. It doesn't get any worse than that. He sends Jesus back to Pilate. And we see here something of the world and the way it relates to Jesus. Because you see, Herod and Pilate were at enmity with each other. They were at odds. They did not like each other. But they came to become friends. How? By both opposing Jesus. By opposing Jesus, they came to come together. And this is also what we see in the world today, isn't it? People will gather together against the cross, against the gospel... Those who are secular and those who are Hindu. Those who are Muslim and those who are Buddhist. They come together against the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that is where the truth of God is found. And so Jesus is sent back to Pilate. And we begin now to see 
in the last stage of this trial, exactly who Jesus is. We see first that he is the rejected one. He comes back to Pilate, and Pilate wants to release him again. You know, it's almost a miracle that Pilate didn't set him free. Do you notice this? Pilate keeps saying over and over and over again, he's innocent. He said it in verse 4. He says it again in verse 14. In verse 15, he says, Herod says he's innocent. And then again in verse 22, he says, there's no guilt in this man. Over and over again, he keeps repeating the innocence. But all Pilate wants to do is to clear his decks. That's why twice when he says Jesus is innocent, he says, well, look, I'll punish him first and then let him go. Now, that should make us angry in and of itself. How would you like that, kids, if dad said, you know, I know that you didn't get those bad grades, so I'll just ground you for two weeks instead of four. I know you didn't poke your sister, so you just can't go out for three Saturdays instead of five. What? How can I be punished if I'm innocent? You see, all Pilate wants to do is to get this problem off his hands. But the people will not have it. They become enraged. Look at verse 18. They cry all together, away with this man, away with him. And the same crowds that a week earlier said, Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Scream out, crucify him. You see, Jesus is here rejected by his own. They are adamant. They begin to shout Pilate down. They won't let the Roman governor save Jesus. This is, of course, the challenge that Jesus faces in the world today. See, the world doesn't want Jesus. The world doesn't want to hear Jesus. They don't want to hear of what he's done or of his authority or of their own need. They say, away with him. Give us something else. Give us money. Give us fame. Give us anything but Jesus. In the midst of this kind of a world, are you committed to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you see, He is rejected by the world. We also see that Jesus is the substitute one. There is great irony here. They don't want Jesus, but who do they want? Barabbas. They don't want the one who is innocent. They want the one who is guilty. They want the murderer. They want the revolutionary, the insurrectionist. He is the guilty one. And we see here in a picture before us, in the man of Barabbas, our own very lives. For you see, the innocent one is substituted for the guilty. And I think it is supreme irony that Barabbas' name means the son of the father. You see... They don't want the true and the innocent and the just. They want the guilty. And so the innocent pays the price of the guilty. That's what Jesus is doing here in this trial. He is there to take your place. You should be standing there mocked. You should be standing there abused. You should be found guilty and condemned to death. But Jesus stands in your place. Who's to blame for this? 
Why is Jesus going to be found guilty? Why is he going to be condemned to death? We can look at this narrative and we can say that the Jewish leaders are to blame. For they're the ones pushing his destruction. We could look and we could blame the Roman authorities. They're the ones that had the actual authority to condemn him to death. We could look at the people and we could say they rejected him. Or we could say they're all the accomplices of Satan. Who exactly is to blame for this happening? The first thing we need to understand is that sin is what brings this about. The sin of injustice. The sin of selfishness. The sin of indifference. But if we're honest with ourselves, this must happen for sin. Are you of two minds as you read this account? You see obviously that Jesus is innocent. You see obviously that he should be set free. You see obviously that he should not suffer. And yet there must be a part of you that says... He has to be crucified. I want him to be crucified. Because unless he's crucified, there's no hope for me. Unless he pays the penalty for my sins, I have no hope. You see, ultimately, Jesus suffers not because of Jews, not because of Romans, not because of crowds, but because he is chosen by God. The will of our God is being done here. This shows us the greatness of the love of God. To plan our deliverance through the giving up of His Son. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him and to put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. It was the will of our God that Jesus go to the cross and Jesus went willingly. Out of the anguish of His soul He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Humanly speaking, this is one of the worst trials in history for injustice. But divinely speaking, it is the love of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit reaching out to sinners like you and me that we might have hope that we might be made right with God because of Jesus and what He did on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You, Lord, that He took our place, that He suffered what we deserved, That he did not resist. It reminds us even more that there is none like the Lord Jesus. He is the only person and place of hope. Lord, make us more and more aware of this today. Guide us to love and serve and worship and adore the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.